our Old Testament lesson, Exodus chapter 23, verses 6 through 9. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, <clears throat> an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgments because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgments. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's uh, read responsibly 
Lord's Day 5. Question 12. It's in your bulletin. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Question 15. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. May God bless our time of teaching and reflection upon his holy word today. We are thinking today about, I want to bring forward before us, a doctrine that we call a penal substitutionary atonement. Now when we say those words, let me just break that down for us. Penal, referring to a penalty. Okay? There's a just penalty that is due to the sinner. Substitutionary, we use the language of substitution in our previous service, that Jesus as our substitutes pays that penalty, and third, the word atonements, bring parties back together who were once estranged from one another. So how then does Jesus accomplish atonements, a reconciliation work, a bringing of sinners back to God, well, by becoming a substitute to bear their penalty? Now, when we think about this doctrine, I want to note for us that there are some in our day who are trying to undermine this one. There, there have been this across the ages, of course, but in our day, one of the key ways that this is happening is that people are trying to appeal to the church fathers and claim that the church fathers rejected this idea. And that this is some sort of Western notion hoisted upon Holy Scripture. This is especially the case among those who would advocate for Eastern Orthodoxy but it's also in other places. So some who want to have a God that is uh, merely love, love, and then love because it becomes a, a dominating attribute of God oh, that pushes out justice, pushes out his holiness, that God is love becomes this love is God kind of approach. And that's not helpful. Or you hear the, the phrase love wins. And again, not helpful at all. And so we need to recognize that this doctrine is under attack whether by those of a more progressive streak or those who want to appeal to church fathers to get rid of it. Let me just quote a few church fathers for us before we unpack this doctrine. But one named Eusebius of Caesarea wrote this. Speaking of Isaiah 53, In this he shows that Christ, being apart from all sin, will receive the sins of men on himself. And therefore he will suffer the penalty of sinners and will be pained on their behalf and not on his own. You have substitution, the penalty because of sin taken by Jesus. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the key fathers 
of Eastern Orthodoxy wrote this, speaking about God and Christ. You redeemed us from the curse and from sin, having become both on our behalf. The Epistle to Diognetus, a little bit of a lengthier text. This is very early on written. In his mercy, speaking of Jesus, he took upon himself our sins. He, gave him, he himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us. The Holy One for the lawless. The guiltless for the guilty. The just for the unjust. The incorruptible for the corruptible. The immortal for the mortal. It's called substitution. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? <clears throat> now listen to this. Oh, sweet exchange! Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Athanasius, but since it was necessary also that the debt owing from all should be paid again, for it was owing that all should die, he next offered up his sacrifice also on behalf of all, yielding his temple to death in the stead of all. So, by way of just recognizing that this is not some idiosyncratic view, that Western Christians with an obsession over justice and legal things invented you find these things taught within the fathers, but more importantly now, more importantly, Holy Scripture teaches these things. First, God is just. Our first point, God is just. We read from our Belgic Confession that summarizes this so well. Belgic Confession 1. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. Eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, Unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good. And the overflowing fountain of all good. Now, when we speak there that way about God, we are not saying that God just possesses justice. Okay? Hear me. It's not that he just possesses it. Like God is more ultimate then he comes into possession of something like that. If he only possesses it, he could get rid of it, it could change, that kind of a thing. What we're saying here is that those things are attributes of his nature. He is justice. It's not that he has it, he is transcendent justice in his very being. Okay? So when we then begin to think about that and think about how God is justice, transcendent justice in his very nature, we also hold that alongside the other attributes listed here and elsewhere. This is not an exhaustive uh, list, but it's a helpful list. It comprehends much of it. 
but it mentions they're also being unchangeable. God is unchangeable in his being. In other words, he cannot become more just or less just. He simply is transcendent justice, and that cannot change. Praise God for that. Who would like to worship and follow a God who might wake up on the wrong side of the bed and might decide to recalibrate his justice based upon cultural trends, let's say. We have a God who's unchanging and who is justice in himself. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So here I want to focus on that one thing in his being, God is just. Now, we move to our second point because this flows on logically from that, that because God in his being is just, that means all of God's work will be just, right? Because who you are gives rise to what you do. God is justice, which means all of his works will be always perfectly just. Okay? You see these two things brought together in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. And then it says, just and upright is he. Okay? These two things are attached to one another. This is why Jesus can speak about the human hearts being the source of all our works. The tree, uh, the, the uh, tree's fruit tells you what kind of tree it is. The same kind of thing with the Lord. One of God's works is his judgments. Okay? This is where we're going here. Think about judgment now. God is just. His works are all just. That means his judgments, one of his works, is just. As we see in Romans 2, verses 1 through 11, as Paul unpacks the justice of God that will overwhelm all sinners on that final day, whether a Jew or a Gentile, doesn't matter. It threatens to overwhelm because you who judge practice the same things. We're all under the same condemnation, we're all sinners, for all sin to fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And so this just judgment threatens everyone, even the most godly person you can think of. Left to him or herself would be undone in the judgment. Why? Again, because God's judgment is just. And he is impartial. Doesn't care who your family is. Doesn't care how much money you have doesn't care all the kinds of things you've done in your life, the good things even, because if you've sinned against his law, you've broken the whole law. God's judgment is perfectly just. Jesus says that in John 5, verse 30. My judgment is just. Or Psalm 98, verse 9, which you read for a call to worship. The Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. God is just, our first point. Second, God judges justly. And third, we need a solution to the just verdict that would come upon us if we were left to ourselves. 
And I mentioned something last week when we were going through Matthew's Gospel. And one of the things I mentioned is this, that when you're reading the Gospels, you know, we, we read it because we kind of know what happens at the end, right? We know there's going to be a crucifixion. We know there's going to be a resurrection. And so then we read the Gospels with that in mind already. If you can imagine reading the Gospels not knowing what happens at the end, so much of the Gospel stories would not make perfect sense to you. You get what's going on, but there would be this lingering question. Like the Pharisees said, how can this man forgive sins? Right? Or when Jesus raises up someone and grants life to them, how can he do that? When he calms a storm as a type and shadow of the new creation, how can he do that? Like, why does he have that authority to do things that only God should do? How is he, this one with flesh, able to do that? It's only when we come to the cross and resurrection that all those things begin to make sense finally. John 5 is like that. Because on one hand, we read in John 5 incredible statement like, my judgment is just. And that the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. And you hear that and you think, whoa, that's terrifying. But then in the very next breath, he says something that seems contradictory. When he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That judgment is now in the past. It's already behind you. You say, how can that be the case for a sinner? That makes no sense. Again, this is why we read the gospel story with the cross and resurrection in mind. Because that solves those apparent contradictions. Things that need the key to unlock it. The cross and resurrection unlocks those riddles for us. And it does that because it is at the cross where he satisfies justice. It's at the cross where he satisfies justice as our substitutes paying our penalty. Again, penal, substitutionary, atonements. From Isaiah 53... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was judged for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that has set us free. By his wounds we are healed. Or from Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse of the law is the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of God for the believer. Do you hear that today? And do you say, Amen? Then be comforted, beloved. Be comforted. For God, through the Son, has brought together Parties that were formerly at war with one another. Not merely you at war with God, but he was at war with you. You were under his condemnation. His wrath was being stored up. 
until all of it, every ounce of it, every drop of it was absorbed by Jesus who drank the cup of wrath perfectly on your behalf, carrying all your sins, past, present, future, paying for all the curse. And this is for another time, what we mentioned earlier in our first service, also satisfying the just demand of the law for you, loving the Father perfectly and loving his neighbor as himself. He has satisfied justice on behalf of the sinner. And so, when judgment day arrives, beloved, rest assured, you will not be scrutinized according to the strict sense of justice that will face those who are outside of Jesus. But on the day of judgment, it will be demonstrated and openly manifest that the good works that you have imperfectly performed in your life were done by the Spirit because you belonged to Jesus and the Spirit was at work in you. And so on that day it will be disclosed that many moons before you passed from death to life, your judgment is behind you. All that is left is that open vindication or manifestation that you belong to your Savior, who satisfied the law's demands on your behalf. Praise be to God. Amen.